Let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray that now that as we look at Exodus, that you help, it, help us to interpret it rightly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we begin our series on this book of Exodus. And uh, I reckon it, in terms of the Old Testament, it's got to be one of the best known stories of the Old Testament, wouldn't you think? I mean, you've got uh, movies about it, uh, Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, uh, Prince of Egypt by Disney, even Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford is kind of uh, obliquely associated. Um, most people, I guess, here today have heard about Moses, fairly famous sort of a name. Uh, most people have heard about the Ten Plagues in Egypt. Most people have heard about the Passover. Uh, we've heard about the Ten Commandments. I guess most people heard about those Ten Commandments. We've heard about the Tabernacle. Uh, they're all here in this book of Exodus. This is an important book, familiar book. And yet I suspect that most people don't really know what to do with the book of Exodus. It's almost an embarrassment. I mean, what do we do with all the killing of Egyptians? God's killing of Egyptians. Is that something we should be enforcing today? Let's get out and kill some Egyptians? Or, or, or with the laws about how everyone needs to worship God, all these laws about it. You know, worship God or you get stoned to death. Should we bring that into practice in our laws today? What should we do? with this book of Exodus. Now, I suspect as we work through the book, we'll find many of the stories familiar, but the issue is how should we interpret them? How are they relevant to us here today? And I reckon the key, the key is to understand the book of Exodus as part of the story of the Bible as a whole. Uh, this book of Exodus is not at the beginning, okay? It's not the very beginning of the Bible, nor is it the very end of the Bible. It's somewhere along the story. And to understand the relevance of the book to us, we need to understand its place in the overall story of the Bible and how it relates to where we fit in the story of the Bible. So let's start off. Let's start off by going back. Okay, we're going to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created humans. He blessed them and he gave them a command. I've put it on your outline from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Can you see it there? We're under the story so far. God blessed them, it's Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God placed mankind in the Garden of Eden and it was looking pretty good. What you've got there is God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under his blessing and rule. But things don't stay that way. Adam and Eve disobey God and they are thrown out of the garden. And from then on, in the story, disobedience to God becomes like a plague. You've got Cain who kills Abel. I move a little bit further down and humanity is so rebellious against God that he sends a flood. Only Noah and his family survive. A bit further along, humanity actually gather together in opposition to God at the Tower of Babel. And he comes down and judges them by, uh, by making, mixing up their languages. The situation just seems to go from bad to worse and God's blessing on humanity looks like it's under serious threat. But God's plan hasn't changed. He will have a people in his place under his blessing and rule. And so God chooses a man called... Abraham. 
And he makes great promises to Abraham. On your outline there, I've put uh, the, the, one of the key promises from Genesis chapter 12. Can you see it there? The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And notice the elements of the promise there. Abraham will go to a land. Promise one. He will become a great nation. You see that? Lots of people. And God will bless him and through Abraham bring his blessing to the world. Through Abraham, we'll get back to the Garden of Eden situation. Once again, under the blessing of God, that's God's promise, nothing less than restoration to Eden. But as you work through the book of Genesis, that promise is tested. Uh, let, let, me, let me test you a little bit on it. Okay? Normally my questions are rhetorical. These are not. You're welcome to yell out. Each generation brings its own test in the book of Genesis. Okay, so Abraham. Abraham gets to the land, okay. But what's, what's the test to the promise with Abraham's generation? Uh, even before we get to the sacrifice of Isaac, is he can't have Isaac. He can't have any children. Okay, he can't have any children uh, at all. How's he going to be a great nation if he can't have children? And then you've got the test of he's asked to kill his son as well. How's he going to be a great nation if he kills Isaac? What about then we work down to Isaac, the next generation? What's the challenge to the promise there? A little bit more, more difficult, that one. He also can't have children. He also can't have children. Uh, I think it's, is it 21-25 or 25-21, something like that in, in Genesis. Isaac can't have children either. Again, how are they going to be a great nation? Uh, but eventually, Isaac has Jacob and uh, Esau. Or Esau and Jacob, really should say it the other way around. Okay, but then what's the challenge in, in, in Esau and Jacob's generation? What's Esau like as a person? He's a rotter, isn't he? He's, he's, a, he's a thief, he's a liar, he's an awful person. Hardly the sort of person that you expect God is going to bless the world through. And yet God changes, uh, changes Jacob, turns him into Israel. Israel has 12 sons and they're in the land of Canaan and then the threat is a terrible famine, drought. That's right. Uh, there's no food. They're going to starve to death, this family of Israel. Uh, but God has provided for them by sending off one of the sons, Joseph, to Egypt. And uh, through Joseph, they're, they're able to get to Egypt. Egypt is like the ancient equivalent of, of the US or Australia or Canada or something like that. It's, it's, it's refugee heaven. You know, it's like uh, imagine Canaan as Mexico and, uh, and uh, Egypt as the US. Everyone wants to get from Mexico to the US. All right? Everyone wants to get from Canaan to Egypt. Well, the Israelites are able to go into refuge in this wealthy country. And at the end of Genesis, Israel and his family are there in Egypt. They've taken refuge and they're safe. God's promises still stand. Okay, so that's the story so far. And that brings us to this book of Exodus, to the story itself that, that we're dealing with today. At the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites are still in Egypt. A few hundred years have passed and uh, the Israelites are doing what they were created to do in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, they're doing what God said would happen in Genesis chapter 12. The Israelites are being fruitful and multiplying. They, they're becoming a great people. Have a look with me, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judas, Kar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Uh, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. It's just ringing of Genesis 1.28, isn't it? Here is God still working to fulfill his promises. Abraham's family are becoming a great nation. But once again, there's a problem, a challenge to God's promise to Abraham. The king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he feels threatened by all these Israelites. The population is getting too big for him. And so he decides to do what the Chinese government decided to do their own people last century. He decides to cut down population growth. Verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so Pharaoh begins plan A. Now, plan A is to enslave the Israelites. What he does is he gets the men away from the women, off to work on projects as slaves. He puts them to work with hard labour. <coughs> Takes them away from their families, gives them hard labour, the sort of labour that doesn't leave you any energy to go home and make babies. But uh, a plan A fails. The Israelites keep on multiplying, contrary to plan A, verse, verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Well, that one hasn't slowed down population growth, so Pharaoh moves to plan B. He commands the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Hebrew boys. It's a, it's a disgusting, evil, wicked plan to make Hebrew women kill the children from their own race to be traitors against their own people, to, to, to make midwives do the very opposite of what they're supposed to do, to, to kill babies instead of bringing them safely into the world. Disgusting plan, but again, Pharaoh's plan is foiled. The midwives, they choose to obey God rather than man. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipper and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. 
A little bit of a side point, and it's a side point that uh, you'll explore if you do Bible study. Can I encourage you to join a Bible study this week and explore this point? A bit of a side point. It's interesting here that God rewards the Hebrew midwives for lying. Don't you think? I take it that this story about Hebrew women giving birth before the midwives arrive is a lie. Certainly not true of my family. Um, my, my Hebrew family uh, just uh, give birth the same as everybody else does. I take it this is a lie. God is very clear that he wants his people to tell the truth. And in the vast majority of situations, that is what we should do. No questions asked. And yet somehow the situation isn't always that clear. Sometimes when you're acting, you need to take into account not just the rightness or wrongness of what you are doing, but you need to think about the consequences of what you're doing as well. Here, it seems, the right thing to do was to lie, to protect those Hebrew baby boys. Very interesting question for uh, Christian ethics. Anyway, side point. Uh, Important point is that Pharaoh's plan B has failed. Failed. And so Pharaoh moves to plan C. Every Israelite boy, every Israelite boy has to be drowned in the Nile River. And it is a command to all of Pharaoh's people. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Again, it's a a repulsive law. Can you imagine? Every Egyptian is commanded to kill any Hebrew baby boy. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if the government made a law like that today about Christians? Can you imagine what it would be like? If any person saw you with a baby boy and knew you were a Christian, it is their civic duty to take your little boy from you and drown them. If any good citizen of Chatswood happens to be walking down Anderson Street and notice that there are these Christians gathered together, it is their duty by law to go into the small hall, rip out the little boys and kill them. How would you like to live under that? It's disgusting. And yet that's where the story ends for us today. That's the story before us. Israel's refuge has become their slavery. God has plans and purposes for this family of Abraham. God's plan is to make them into a great nation. God's plan is to put them in the promised land. God's plan is to to bless them and through them to bless the world. But Pharaoh has now set himself in direct opposition to God. Pharaoh is opposing God's plan for Israel. The stage is set. War has begun. War has begun. Okay. We've seen the background to the story. We've looked at the story itself. Now we've only just got the rest of the Bible to do in our short uh, sermon today. All right, Let's let's press on through the Bible and uh, see how the story continues so we can see how it relates to us. Okay, it's got to be fairly brief. As the story continues at Exodus and through the book of Numbers, God does rescue Israel out of slavery. Sorry if I've wrecked the story for you, but God does rescue Israel out of slavery. Uh, He gives them his laws... He leads them through the desert and eventually by the sixth book in the Bible, the book of Joshua, he brings them into the promised land. Uh, God's people are in God's place and for a while under people like King David and Solomon, they are under his blessing and rule. But the story doesn't end there. You see, the problem is is there's a deeper slavery than slavery to Egypt. 
It's the slavery that got people kicked out of the Garden of Eden in the first place. It is slavery in disobedience to God. It is slavery to Satan, slavery to sin. Uh, Israel get into the promised land, but it's never the final solution to humanity's problem because the Israelites, like Adam and Eve before them, keep on disobeying God. Eventually, they get so awful that God throws them out of the promised land. Like Adam and Eve were thrown out of Eden, the, the, the Israelites are thrown out of the promised land. People are slaves of sin. And until that deeper problem is dealt with, there can be no lasting situation of God's people being in God's place under his blessing and rule. But yet God's plan for humanity still stands. In the Old Testament prophets, God promises that there'll be an even bigger and better salvation than this salvation in Exodus. He promises that he will save his people from sin and bring them to an eternal promised land, a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where Jesus comes into the story. Jesus lived a perfect life. He succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded where Israel failed. He never disobeyed God. And yet, by dying on the cross, by dying in our place, not for his own sin, he didn't have any, by dying in our place, Jesus paid the price for human disobedience. He bore the death penalty for us. And so, he is the fulfilment of God's plan. Every promise, as we sang before, comes to its fruition in Jesus. Now, through Jesus, people can be God's people in his place, the new heaven and new earth. And with our sin dealt with, our sin taken away, we can be blessed by God forever. Through Jesus, it is back to Eden. So can you see now how this story of Exodus, it's part of God's big plan, part of his plan to save people, part of his plan to bring us out of slavery to sin and death and bring us to a new heaven, a new earth. It's part of his plan to have his people in his place under his rule. But from the Bible's perspective, and if I've lost you now, come back to me, from the Bible's perspective, this is not just some ancient and irrelevant part of salvation history. From the Bible's perspective, the story of the Exodus has an abiding value. And it has abiding value for two reasons. First, the Exodus story teaches us something about the God of salvation. It teaches us about the God of salvation. The God who rescues the Israelites in Exodus is the same God who rescues us through Jesus. He is the same God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God hasn't changed. And so as we see God in action here in Exodus, we can learn what he's like. Just have a think about Exodus chapter 1 again for a moment then and think about what does this teach us about the God of salvation? What does it teach us about the God of salvation? I reckon there are a couple of very important things about God that are seen here. Firstly, here in Exodus chapter 1, we see a God who is committed to his promises. God says, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And God does what he says. Even if it takes a long time, even though there are challenges on the way, God does what he promises. That's a good thing to know, don't you reckon? Good thing to know, because it's good for us to know, because that is the foundation of our faith as Christians. You think about what do we actually have as Christians? God has promised us that if we rely on Jesus, we'll have eternal life. We can't see that. We can't touch it all we have really all we have is a promise 
So, so it's good to know that we have a God who keeps his promises. Good to know that his track record is good. Second, this, uh, this chapter shows us a God who must be obeyed. Even over and above secular authorities. Uh, God does command us to respect and obey our governing authorities. But if the authorities command us to do what God commands us not to do, or if the authorities command us not to do what God commands us to do, the choice is clear. We must obey God rather than men. Exodus reveals to us something of the God of salvation, a God who keeps his promises, a God who must be obeyed. The second reason that the Exodus story has abiding value, and uh, can I appreciate I'm a little boring this morning. I see lots of yawning, lots of people asleep. I realise it's hot, but this is the key point now. Okay, so Come back to me now, because if you don't get this, we'll miss the whole interpretive key to, uh, to Exodus. All right, This is the second reason that the Exodus story has abiding value, and that is that it teaches us about the salvation of God. Exodus teaches us about the salvation of God. The salvation in Exodus is used in the Bible as a model. Up on the back of the wall there you can see some drawings. You can see those drawings there. They are drawings of a development that we hope to do here on site. Uh, They're nice drawings. Thank you to whoever drew them. Um, But in a few weeks we're going to get something even nicer. You know what we're going to get? We're going to be given a model. Okay, a model of the possible development in a few weeks. Now, it's not going to be the development itself, I hope, because it'll be way too small for us to fit inside. Okay, it's just going to be a little thing made out of wood. All right? But from the model, we're going to be able to tell something of what the real development will look like. God's salvation in Exodus is a little bit like the model. It models his ultimate salvation in Christ. Now, on your outline there, I've put a very simple parallel to give you the idea. Can you see it there? We're now... Uh, Uh, Halfway down the second side, the salvation of our God. Can you see the parallel? You've got slavery in Egypt for the the Israelites. That is a model of the deeper slavery to sin and death and the devil that all people are under. Do you see that? Uh, Then Israel are saved out of Egypt uh, and into the desert. They're out of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land yet. That's something like where we are now as Christians. We're saved from sin, but we're not in the promised land yet. We're we're not in the new heaven and new earth yet. That's why we can sing now. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. We haven't yet crossed Jordan. We haven't yet entered the promised land. But then thirdly, there's the promised land, which is a model of the new heaven and new earth. Can you see how it works? Can you see how the salvation of Exodus parallels our salvation in Christ? It's not just part of God's overall plan of salvation. It has an abiding significance as a model for how God saves. So let's come back to Exodus chapter 1 and let's think again. What does this show us as a model of our salvation? What does this show us as a model of our salvation? It's picturing slavery in Egypt, isn't it? That's what this Exodus chapter 1 is about, slavery in Egypt. And so it is showing us as a model something of our slavery before we're Christians, to sin and death and the devil. It models the slavery that Christ has saved us from. So let me just point to three things about this chapter that just enrich our understanding of the the slavery that we have been saved from. First, first notice that there's a war going on. A war for the control of God's people. In Exodus, God and Pharaoh are at war for the control of God's people. 
That is a model of a deeper war, a war that is being waged over us. Uh, the Apostle Peter, for example, in the New Testament, talks about sinful desires that war against our soul. The Apostle Paul, uh, he talks about uh, in our first reading how we are following the ways of this world and the ruler of the prince of the air. All of us at one time, uh, at one time were in slavery to him. Uh, Peter talks about the devil being like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Apostle Paul talks about God rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Friends, we are in a war zone. It's important to know. Uh, Those people that you know who are not saved, who do not trust in Jesus, they're, they're not just neutral. They're not just okay. They are enslaved by enemy forces. They are enslaved by the forces of the world and the devil, and sin. Those people without the Lord Jesus Christ are in dire need. There's a war on and there is no neutral ground. Second, from this chapter, notice how Pharaoh kills babies. God's plan for his people is life and blessing. His first command to humanity is, go out and have sex. All right? Be fruitful and multiply. His plan for Abraham's family is that they become a great nation. But Pharaoh's plan is to control God's people and part of the way he does it is by killing their babies. I don't want to say too much about this, but I suspect that this has something to say to a society that sacrifices something like 100,000 babies a year to the gods of materialism and comfort and convenience. I suspect this has something to say to a society that sees children as an inconvenience to be avoided. Jesus said that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. He longs to control us. It seems to me he's got a pretty firm foothold in a nation where the least safe place you can possibly be is not bungee jumping, but in your mother's womb. Finally, Finally, I think it's interesting to notice here in Exodus chapter 1 that it's the place of refuge that becomes the place of slavery. As I said before, Egypt was like the ancient equivalent of Canada or the US or Australia or something. It's the place where all the Mexicans want to go. All right? It's wealthy, it's comfortable. This is refugee heaven. But it is not the place that God has for his people. It's not God's promised land for Abraham's descendants and so it easily becomes a place of oppression. It can very easily be true with slavery to sin as well. Part of the trick of Satan is that he doesn't necessarily use bad things to lead us into slavery. I suspect he's not going to trick too many people with kind of Satanism and occult in all its ugly glory. More often, the way Satan leads us astray is with good things. By, By taking... By getting us to take good things and make them ultimate things. By getting us to take good things and make them idols. By getting us to take good things and and turn them into the centre of our life and our identity. Uh, We might look to certain things for refuge, to to money, to family, to career. And in and of themselves they might be fine. But if we try to centre our lives on them, if we make an idol of them, then like Egypt for the Israelites, they can quickly become our slavery. They can go what seems like a refuge to a place of slavery. Let me give you some examples. You can love your spouse. That's good. But if you make your spouse the centre of your life and identity, 
it'll twist you. You become emotionally dependent, jealous, controlling. Love your children, that's good. But if you centre your life and identity on your children, if you try to live your life vicariously through your children, as I see too many dads doing on on the side of the soccer field, well, they will begin to resent you or end up having no self of their own. Work hard at your job, that's good. But if you centre your life and identity on your work, you become a driven workaholic, you become a boring, shallow, lonely person. Do you see the point? Even good things can become slavery. Even that which looks like a refuge can become slavery. We need to centre our life and identity in God. Anything else will destroy us. Okay, I'm sorry it's been hard work in the heat. But can you see something of the significance of Exodus chapter 1? Can you see something of how to get it from there to here as it reveals the God of salvation to us, the God who keeps his promises? the God who is worthy of obedience, and as it reveals something of the salvation of our God to us, as it models to us uh, how we're in a war zone, how we're facing an enemy who wants to kill us, and about how even good things can enslave us. It's important stuff, I think, isn't it? Worth working hard at. I trust there's plenty more for us to learn as we spend the next few months in Exodus. For now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you have set us free from slavery to sin, that you have set us free from slavery to the devil, that you have set us free from following the ways of this world. We pray, Heavenly Father, now that as we are set free but not yet in the promised land, that you will guide us, that you will keep us, that you will enable us to live as your people. We pray that you will soon send the Lord Jesus back to bring us into the new heaven and new earth forever. We pray it in his name. Amen.